Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, join us at Walters for the first ever Nats Chat podcast party. We'll hang out, watch playoff baseball, chat about the Nats, and get to know fellow fans of the team. The event begins at 7 p.m. at Walters, just across from Nationals Park, on Friday night, October 14th. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 1-1 delivery. Breaking ball hammered to straightaway center field and deep. Blade ranging back to the warning track at the wall. He leaps and it's off the wall. Deflects off his body. Rolls along the warning track toward right center field. Manessis is digging for third. He's being waved in. Blade's throw toward the plate. Manessis for the inside the park home run. He dives and he scores. Joey Manessis circles the bases with an inside the park home run. Scott checking on the runner at second again. The lefty deals. Swing a line drive right field. Coming on is Anderson into a slide. Missed the ball and it gets by him. Heading home is Garcia. Heading toward the plate is Adams. The throw home from Wendell. Adams is in standing. He scores. And the game is tied over to third goes Abrams. Here's the pitch. Swing and a belt to left center field. De La Cruz on the run going way back onto the warning track. Can't get it. And it bounces over the fence. And into the Marlins' bullpen. Manassas will score. Boyd will go to third. And in at second with a go-ahead RBI double is Hildemar Vargas. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 17th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nats Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, who says that the Nats can't beat the Miami Marlins this season. A 5-4 come-from-behind win over the Marlins at Nationals Park on Friday night in Game 1 of a three-game series. That's this season now 2-12 and against the Marlins. So the Nats... Five-game losing streak is over, and the Nats now are a Major League worst 50-94, and so three wins away from clinching, not having a 110-loss season. The Nats on Friday night overcame a 4-0 seventh-inning deficit, four runs in a bottom of the seventh that included an inside-the-park home run and a triple, and then we had the tie-breaking run in the bottom of the eighth. We do have some bad Nats news regarding Cade Cavalli and Steven Strasburg to get to on the show. But Mark, a nice comeback win for the Nats on Friday night. Yeah, against a team that, as we've said, they um, have had all kinds of trouble with this year. So it was nice to see them do that because this was shaping up to be another one of those games where you get to the end of the night and you're saying, well, Josiah Gray struggled. The offense did nothing. And hey, they lost yet another game to the Marlins. Yet another game within the National League East. And instead, it 
actually turned into one of their more uplifting wins of the year because of the way they came back and because of who was responsible for the comeback. Joey, four bags without hitting the ball out of the park, Manessis. C.J. Abrams, a big triple to score a couple runs off a lefty. And then Ildemaro Vargas with the go-ahead hit. And I feel like those three, more than anybody else in this lineup, are the ones we talk about the most these days. Three names we did not ever think we'd be talking about a while ago, and they have all come through for them a lot here lately. So that's been a nice development. Well, the highlight of the night clearly was the Joey Manessis inside the park solo home run. And yes, you heard that right. Joey Manessis hit an inside the park home run on Friday night. Manessis in that Nats four-run seventh, a leadoff inside the park home run on a high fly ball off the center field wall to cut the Nats deficit to 4-1. This was something. The ball hit the center field wall, then hit the Marlins center fielder, J.J. Blade and then rolled along the warning track toward right field. And because Marlins right fielder Brian Anderson had come toward center field, Blade had to go chasing after the ball as it rolled along the warning track toward right field. It felt like it took Blade about an hour to get to the ball. And so Manessis ended up having an inside-the-park home run. I don't know what the time around the bases was. I would imagine it's not the quickest in the history of Major League Baseball. But how about that? I mean, Joey Manessis finding a new way to be Joey Fourbags. So a couple things here. The Nationals did time it, and it's more than 17 seconds, which if you know anything about base running, you know that you ideally want to make it from one base to the next in less than four seconds. So do the math. Four times four is 16. This was a full second beyond that on the inside the Parker. It was the first inside the park home run of his life, I guess, or professional career. Certainly, I asked him, had you ever even thought about hitting an inside the park home run? He says, no, never. (laughs) So this was completely unexpected. And I think my favorite part of it is as he's approaching third base, he's putting on the brakes. It never even crosses his mind that Gary DeSarcina might wave him around. And when he sees it, he's like, oh my God, I got to keep going. He had no idea what was going on behind him. And he turns it on again and does his best (laughs) to get going again and an awkward slide across the plate. And then he was gassed at the end of that. But what a moment, a really nice curtain call for him after something he said he will always remember. That really turned into a special moment in what's turning into a special couple of months for Joey Manessas here in D.C. Yeah, he slid into home plate, but there really wasn't much of a play at home plate. I mean, he was in like there wasn't, you know, anything to really worry about. This wasn't like some controversial send by Gary DeSarcina or anything like that. A well-struck ball and it ends up being an extra base hit to the tune of an inside the park home run. Manessas on Friday night, one for three with the inside the park homer. Also drew a walk in the Nats. One run eighth, drew a one out six pitch walk. We mentioned C.J. Abrams. I mentioned the triple. C.J. Abrams is hitting now in a much better way than he had been hitting in his initial weeks with the Nats. It feels like, okay, he's starting to come around offensively. He was actually the Nats' number nine batter in this game on Friday night. The Davey Martinez lineups, they are like a box of chocolate in Forrest Gump these days. You never know what you're going to get. Every lineup is different. Alex Call was the number two batter for this game. So all kinds of things going on with the lineup right now. Abrams was a number nine batter, one for three with a two-run triple. In that four-run seventh, Abrams, a two-out, two-run triple to right field on a one-two pitch to tie the game at four. 
Abrams hit a liner toward the Marlins right fielder Brian Anderson. Anderson failed in his attempt at a sliding forward catch, and Abrams wound up at third base. A big hit. You weren't sure if like the inning was going to kind of peter off, you know, if there was another like oomph that was to come from the Nats. Well, Abrams provided the oomph. Impressive hit, big hit, and uh, not in the game at four. Yeah, and he's starting to come through in more of these kind of situations. It's not just his compiling hits. They're meaningful hits. A lot of them have been. And this one, off a lefty, two outs in a close game late in the game on a 1-2 breaking ball. That's a lot of things when you put that all together. You say that's a good quality at bat and a really nice thing to see that this young kid is adjusting, is able to handle that kind of pitch in that kind of situation. More and more, you are seeing everything that we thought we knew was going to be true about C.J. Abrams, but to actually see it in practice and coming through in all those spots is really encouraging. We know the defense now. We've already seen that. We saw more of it in this game to see the offense coming around as well in meaningful situations against tough pitchers. I don't see how it can't leave you encouraged by what the future may hold for this 21-year-old. You had a feeling when he was really struggling because again, we've seen this before with other guys, it's going to change. Like He's not going to be like this. And sure enough, he's not like this. It is getting better. There's still more that needs to come, clearly. But it looks better. It feels better with him right now. He's not an automatic out. And he's starting to show some pop. Like He's starting to get some extra base hits, which has been really good to see. And speaking of extra base hits, uh, Ildemaro Vargas on Friday night, another big hit. I mean, how many clutch hits has he had for the Nats over the last uh, month and a half here? Vargas on Friday night as an ad starting third baseman and number five batter. I mean, this is where we are now. Ildemaro Vargas is an ad's number five batter in this game, but one for four with a big RBI double. Vargas in the Nats, one run eighth, a one out, full count, tie-breaking RBI ground rule double off the left center field warning track for a 5-4 Nats lead. The Nats in this game on Friday night only had eight hits, but three of the eight hits were these extra base hits we just went through. The Joey Manessis inside the park homer, the C.J. Abrams two-run triple, and this big Ildemaro Vargas RBI double. Yeah, and even more than any of these other guys, it feels like Ildemaro Vargas is their most clutch hitter, doesn't it? He is coming through in really big, meaningful spots late in games to either tie it up or give them the lead. And it's often an extra base hit. We saw him hit a couple home runs earlier. You have this one. He is fast becoming like their go-to guy in a big spot. And I noticed this the other day. It's dropped a little bit. But at this point, going into the day, according to Baseball Reference, Ildemaro Vargas is fifth on the Nationals in war for the season, having only been here for, what, six weeks. It's Juan Soto and Josh Bell at the top by far. And then it's really close. This has been flip-flopping back and forth. It's Lane Thomas at 1.6, Cabert Ruiz, who we know is done now, at 1.5, and Vargas at 1.5. So that tells you how much impact this guy has had in a very limited amount of playing time since he got here. He is contributing in meaningful ways in the field and at the plate. And talk about unexpected developments. I mean, obviously, Joey Manessis has been unexpected. But I think you could say Vargas even more so, given his track record of never being a hitter at any level, being a good defensive player. He is coming through in big situations at the plate. And he's doing this consistently now to the point that you think there may be something there. There may be some kind of trait, some kind of quality he has that's allowing him to do this. Yeah, and just to break down Ildemaro Vargas from a war perspective even more, his offensive war 
is 1.1. And like you were just saying, Vargas isn't known for his bat. The fact that Ildemar Vargas in less than 40 games has provided 1.1 offensive war is stunning. That's what Manessis has provided. Okay. And like Manessis, at least it kind of makes sense just because he's hit a lot of home runs and, you know, he's more of a batter. But (laughs) that Vargas has done that really is something. Again, you know, I come back to this, like, what does it mean, especially with Vargas? I tend to think probably not a lot, but he is really producing. This is pretty impressive that he's doing this. And it's one thing to get hot and do this for a week, maybe a month. This is more than that now. This is going to end up being like the final two months of the season. Ildemaro Vargas was an offensive force for the Nats. Like, think about that sentence, but that's the truth. That's what he has been. Yeah. And like you said, hitting at big spots in the lineup, you know, in fact, he's hitting fifth and it sounds crazy. But if you look at who the nine guys were in this game, you'd say, well, yeah, probably that's where he should be. I know you've brought up before and and compared this a little bit to what Alcides Escobar did last year and how that earned him a, a contract to come back. I think this goes beyond that. Escobar had some nice numbers for them. And I know he was good with two strikes and things like that, but he wasn't delivering meaningful hits like this. He wasn't hitting for the power that Vargas is, and he certainly wasn't playing the all-around defense that Vargas is. Now, again, I have no idea if this means anything, the big picture, if this is somebody at age, what, 31, who is suddenly going to become a part of the Nationals' future. But at this point, given what their other options are, I'm more than comfortable bringing him back as their utility infielder and knowing that there's a possibility he ends up getting more playing time depending on how the rest of the infield shakes out for next year. I think there's something there that is, even if he doesn't hit anymore, We know he's a quality defensive player who can back up at multiple positions, and that has value in itself. Yeah. And, you know, thinking bigger picture, he's someone who you could potentially flip at the deadline next year. He's someone who could bring something back. And it's ironic, right? Because the reason he's up is because he replaced someone else who surprisingly got flipped at the deadline this year in A. Ray Adrianza. There's something else that I wanted to bring up, too, with the Nats from a position player standpoint from Friday night. We've talked about the domino effect of when Nelson Cruz DHs, what that means defensively, in addition to offensively for the Nats this season. So Nelson right now is out with this eye issue. And so we recently have seen Joey Manessis where we want to see him at first base. Luke Voigt has been the designated hitter. Well, on Friday night, you had Lane Thomas as an at starting right fielder. You would not have had that had, say, Nelson Cruz been the DH. Lane Thomas on Friday night had a big outfield assist in this game. Top of the eighth, he threw out Miguel Rojas in his attempt to go from first to third on a two-out single. Rojas is going to make the turn and head for third. Thomas up with the ball. Here's the throw to third. He is out at third. And the side's retired. It was kind of a weird night for the Nats bullpen. Overall, the bullpen was effective. Four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings. But the four Nats relievers also combined to give up six singles. There were a lot of base runners in the latter innings of this game, uh, especially with the Nats' last three relievers, Paolo Espino, Carl Edwards Jr., and Kyle Finnegan. Edwards, in the top of the eighth, tossed a scoreless top of the eighth, despite giving up three singles. I mean, you don't see that often, and yet Edwards did do that. That was a big assist by Thomas. That was an impressive assist, and it doesn't happen if you don't have him in right field and you don't have the defensive alignment that you had for this game on Friday night. Yeah, it's an excellent point. That was a cannon of a throw from him. I don't know if I've ever seen him make a throw like that, no matter what outfield position he was playing. And you had in this game, their defensive lineman in the outfield, Alex Collin left, Victor Robles in center, Lane Thomas in right. That might be the best defensive outfield they've put out there in a long time. And I'm going back even to the very good teams 
that they've had. Now, offensively, there may be some issues there, but the effort, the range, the overall talent you had defensively from those three was really impressive, and it did make a difference in this game. They played a really good defensive game. C.J. Abrams had another great game at shortstop. And then also a big part of that inning was the pickoff throw by Carl Edwards to get pinch runner Williams, who was running for Blade. If he doesn't do that, the rest of the inning may play out very differently. And all of a sudden that hit that led to the Thomas assist at third base may have scored a run and may have changed the whole outlook on this game. So there was a lot of stuff going on defensively, but it's a great point that you make, which is Lane Thomas is not in a position to make that play if Nelson Cruz is in the lineup. Yeah, it's an obvious thing, but one thing leads to another. And so like when you have something like the Nelson Cruz situation at DH this year, it's not just about him and what he is or isn't doing. It's about the domino effect that that can ignite. And there has been that this season. And you do see the reverse of that when he's not in the lineup. We hope he's doing all right with his eye issue, but you know, it's hard not to be thinking about what could be and what is, you know, depending on who's in the lineup and who's out there in the field. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Menezes' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
And the pitch swung on, belted a deep right center. Thomas moving back out of the warning track at the wall, and it's gone! Goodbye, Lewin Diaz with a two-run home run after the walk to Groshans. And the Marlins have put a crooked number up on the board now here in the top of the second inning. With that two-run homer, it's now Miami 4 and Washington nothing. Well, if not for the Nats rallying on Friday night, if not for the Nats' good defense on Friday night, this would have been very much a downer installment of the Nats Chat Podcast because from a starting pitching standpoint, there were a lot of negative things transpiring on Friday. And we'll start with the negative thing that happened in the game on Friday night. Josiah Gray on Friday night was not good for a third consecutive start. His September is not going well. His end of the season is not going well. And note, he has been struggling lately despite being given ample time between starts. I mean, if fatigue is a factor here, you cannot blame the Nats. They are giving him a lot of rest between starts. Josiah Gray on Friday night started a game for the first time in eight days. He allowed four runs in five innings, gave up five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He issued three more walks, He recorded four strikeouts. He did throw a lot of strikes, although he threw a lot of pitches, but 90 pitches over his five innings, 63 strikes versus just 27 balls. So that's good. But the bottom line is four runs in five innings. His ERA for the season now over 26 starts is up to 514. His walks per nine innings now up to 415. He has allowed a major league worst 37 home runs. And it's not even close. If you look at pitchers and the home runs that have been allowed this year, It's Josiah Gray at 37, and then I think Jose Barrios is number two at like 28. I mean, the gap is really big. And the other thing is that Gray has allowed a National League worst 63 walks. Most homers allowed in the majors, most walks issued in the National League, ERA over five. It doesn't feel good what's happening here with Josiah Gray. He was not facing a good hitting team on Friday night, and yet he still ended up giving up four runs in five innings. I was looking at all the same numbers you were just putting out there and had the same thoughts and just give everyone a little look behind the curtain as a beat writer, as you're writing a game story as a game is happening, because you have to have it done as soon as it's over. Before the seventh inning of this game, I'm already working on what I assume is going to be a Josiah Gray-centric game story, so much so that I'm even wondering, is this the last time we're going to see him pitch this year for the Nationals? We know that they have been watching the innings limit. They've been, especially here lately, like you said, has not been so great in spite of the extra time off. And then Masson caught that exchange with Davey Martinez in the dugout. Davey goes up to him after the fifth inning, puts his hands on his shoulders and has a long one-sided conversation with him where Josiah, all you see him doing is nodding his head in agreement with whatever Davey is saying to him. And I'm thinking in my mind, did he just tell him that's enough? We're going to shut you down for the year. Now, in hindsight, it was not that at all. And this is interesting. The takeaway on the national side in the clubhouse and from Davey and from Josiah after this one was actually one of encouragement. And here's why. They really wanted him to pound the strike zone in this game, and he did that. His first eight pitches were strikes. It was like something 16 of his first 17 pitches were strikes. He gave up a couple of little You know, infield singles obviously gave up the home run, and that's been a huge issue for him. The walks, of course, are a big thing. But Davey took this and said, you gave up four runs in the second inning. You came right back from that and shut them down the rest of the way. Josiah felt like he could come back for another inning, and that conversation there was Davey saying to him, no, you know what? You did what you need to do tonight. I'm impressed with what you did. Next year, 
we're going to start looking at the results. Right now, we're more interested in the process, and the process tonight was better than it's been. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, but that is what they were doing. And Davey said he's not done for the year. They want to have him pitch again probably in five, six days in Miami. That's cool. I mean, I don't want to be dismissive of that. I think it's nice to hear that. And I think there always is value in looking beyond the results. And so, yeah, I mean, it is true that Josiah did come back from giving up the four runs in the inning. And so there's something to that. I guess what I'm bothered by is third straight bad start. He's getting ample rest between starts and things aren't getting better in terms of the results. Like process matters, but you know, you can also look at the results too. It's not an either or situation. And, you know, it's always a nice thing when you have a young player and you see him get better as the season goes on and you see things go better for him as the season goes on. And especially for this team this season, it would feel so good to see someone like Josiah Gray end the season on a high note. And he's not doing that. And I just wish that he was, (laughs) you know, like we've seen him pitch well in games this year. Like we've seen him this year have both good process and good results. And so I'm kind of like, well, if we saw that earlier in the year, why can't we see that now again, especially against a team like the Marlins? His previous two starts came against two first place teams in the Mets and the Cardinals and things did not go well. Six runs and five innings against the Mets, four runs and three into third innings against the Cardinals. Remember that Cardinals game, he gave up two home runs to Yadier Molina, you know, age 39 season Yadier Molina, who came into the game with just two home runs the entire season. So I hear Davey on that. And like I said, I don't want to be dismissive of it, but it doesn't feel great right now, the way things are ending for Josiah Gray. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I was thinking, hey, how nice would it be to have a couple of strong starts at the end of the year, let him go into the offseason feeling better about himself. Maybe he'll still get that in the next you know couple of starts that he has. But I did think it was interesting of how they framed this outing because I, like you, did not think it was anything that great. I liked the strike throwing early on. He was going to his fastball a lot more. He wasn't missing the way he does with his fastball where everything tails out and away from a lefty hitter. So that you know were some good things. But in the end, you look at the final line, you're saying home runs, walks, four runs in five innings, a very high pitch count. He was working really slow there at times. So I was expecting a little bit more of a negative reaction to it They didn't feel that way. And I do think it's interesting that, I mean, Davey actually put it out there to say, we're not focused on the results right now with Josiah. We are really focused on the process and felt like this is a good step for him. But look, if he has another bad one next weekend in Miami, if if he ends the season, you know, ERA 520, 530, you know, 40 home runs allowed, something like that, it's going to be hard to look at that and say there were positive steps this year. But he did make it clear that right now, it's not about the results, about the process, but that next year, he is expecting results. So you better take what you've learned this year and apply it next year and, and come out of this thing with some more wins. Well, another starting pitcher who you look at from a Nationals perspective and say to yourself, man, this guy needs to pan out, of course, is Cade Cavalli. And we on Friday afternoon got more bad news on Cade Cavalli. So we know that he has been trying to work his way back from this right shoulder inflammation Him pitching in a game has always felt far-fetched. Davey Martinez just a few days ago essentially conceded that Cade probably was not going to be pitching in a game, but that, you know, the idea was to continue to work as if he might pitch in a game. Well, we on Friday afternoon learned that Cade Cavalli has been shut down again and has in fact received a cortisone shot due to having experienced right shoulder discomfort 
during his first throwing session since being placed on the 15-day injured list. Uh, The Nats on August 31st put Cavalli on the 15-day IL with the right shoulder inflammation, backdated that to August 28th. He had just completed a two-week shutdown, had just been cleared to begin throwing, and in his first throwing session, the session gets cut short because of right shoulder discomfort. Again, like with Josiah Gray, this doesn't feel good. This is certainly not how you would draw it up. You know, I read what you wrote about it. I know that the Nats are trying to say that they're not supremely concerned. Okay, fine. I don't know how you aren't concerned about this, that this guy, again, in his first throwing session, has to cut the darn thing short because the right shoulder is acting up again. Yeah, I felt the same way when he revealed it to us. So we just went up to talk to him in the clubhouse after or before the game because, you know, figured, oh, let's ask him how things went in the throwing session. You feeling good? And how's this going to go for the next couple of weeks for you? And he volunteers that information. And you say, whoa, hang on a second. What, what exactly happened there? Then he acknowledged that he got a cortisone shot in the shoulder. He said, Davey said, three to seven days shut down again. And then they evaluate at that point how to proceed. Now, the thing they're insisting all along is that all the MRIs show everything is clean. There's no structural anything. It is just limited to this inflammation. But to me, if in your very first attempt to throw after being shut down for two weeks, you're experiencing a problem again, that is a concern to me. And even if it turns out that everything is fine here, and maybe that's what it will be, you do now have this situation where he's going to go into the winter and we're not really going to know how is he. He's going to show up to spring training and we're going to have to watch for this. And as he starts to build his arm back up, is there going to be a recurrence at any point of this? And so that to me was always the reason why guys like him, like Mackenzie Gore, why there was some value in trying to come back from the injury before the end of the year so that you can put that all behind you and go into the offseason and next spring and not be thinking, I still need to prove that I'm healthy. In Cavalli's case, let's see how this plays out the next you know two and a half weeks, but it would seem to me that he's probably going to go into the spring with us having to ask him how his shoulder is doing. And until he's really pitching every fifth day with no issues, it's probably going to be a question. Yeah. And, you know, you take a step back with Kay Cavalli and look, if you're him, you got to be positive. If you're the Nats, you got to be positive. But, you know, it's our job to be realistic. This has not been a good season to me for Cade Cavalli from a standpoint of what we thought could be, okay? Now, yes, you could say, well, he got promoted to the majors this season. Yes, you could say that. But you could also say he got promoted to the majors long after anyone realistically thought he would be promoted to the majors. He got off to a really bad start at AAA this year. He gets called up to the majors. He makes one start. The start does not go well. Seven runs in four and a third innings in a 7-3 loss to Cincinnati at Nationals Park on August 26th. He soon lands on the 15-day injured list with right shoulder inflammation. And then in his first throwing session off going on the 15-day IL, he has to be shut down again. Like if I put all of that on a piece of paper and handed it to you at the beginning of this Nats season and said, if you sign this piece of paper, this is what will happen with Cade Cavalli this year. There's not a single person listening to this podcast who would have signed that piece of paper. And so to me, this is a disappointing year from our perspective for Cade Cavalli. Now, what it means moving forward, hard to say, okay? And it's not about like, well, he's a bust or he's a massive failure or anything like that. It's about from our perspectives as Nats observers and fans, what has happened with Cade Cavalli this year, what has transpired with Cade Cavalli this year 
is disappointing. This is not what anybody wanted. And this is not going in the direction that you want it to go. It's not unlike the Josiah Gray ordeal. You can find positives. You can frame things in a positive way. But nobody would have signed up for what has ended up transpiring with Cade Cavalli this year. No, not with what the expectation was going into it. Now, maybe the expectations were too high. Maybe we looked at this at the time and said, here is the one and only legitimate prospect they have that's anywhere close to big league ready. And we're going to look at him like we used to look at Steven Strasburg and other number one picks who came through here who were so dominant in the minor leagues and then got up here and had immediate success. And that hasn't been the case. Now, maybe we should not have viewed it that way all along and said, well, hang on a second. This guy is good, has a potential to be very good, but he's not that sure thing that those others were. And so I think that has maybe framed the way that we view the season for him. He did have a nice sustained stretch of dominance at AAA before he was called up. So they didn't call him up just because they felt like, well, we better call this guy up. He's our number one prospect. They called him up. They waited a long time to call him up to make sure that he was having sustained success at AAA. So that part of it was good. It took longer than we all hoped it would. And certainly what's happened since he got called up here has been very disappointing. I don't know what that means for next year. He may come in and be lights out and be fantastic for them. And we're off and running for the rest of his career. But I do think it reminds us to take a step back here and say, well, hang on a second. We don't really know where his ceiling is, what he's going to be. You want to believe that he can be a number one starter in the big leagues and maybe he will get there, but he's not Strasburg. He doesn't have that resume. There's a little more variance there and less of a track record, both in college and coming up through the minor leagues that you say, let's take a step back. Let's see how this all plays out. Number one, you hope he's healthy. That's the most important thing. But beyond that, we need to see that he can actually be a successful big league pitcher. We just have not gotten an opportunity to know if that's true or not. Yeah. I mean, I just go back to Davey Martinez in spring training, talked about Cade Cavalli being like on the doorstep of being major league ready. You know, you look at the prospect rankings, he's been a top 100 prospect. He was an ads number one prospect. Strasburg, no, but the hope with a guy like this is that he becomes a really good starting pitcher. And, you know, he makes one start, it doesn't go well, and now he can't stay healthy with the right shoulder. It's like, it's another one of these things That just has not developed well for the Nats this season. I mean, you know, added to the list, obviously. And speaking of that, Steven Strasburg. So one of the things I've brought up is how he's almost become like a ghost. Like you never hear about him. You never hear from him. I know he's been around the team, so it's not like he's disappeared. But it's been eerie and ominous, the lack of information out there about Steven Strasburg for months now. Well, coming out on Friday was a piece from the Washington Post on Strasburg. And this really was the first substantial update on Strasburg in months. And the update, in a lot of ways, only adds to the uncertainty, but it is kind of a revealing piece. Strasburg admits that he is uncertain about whether he'll ever pitch in a game again. He says, quote, I realize the clock is ticking. It's been almost three years since I've been able to pitch competitively, and it's not like I'm getting younger. He also discussed the passing of his father earlier in the summer. I don't know that there was like concrete news in the piece. There were some details about his condition and what he's gone through. But, you know, it reads in a very sad way, you know, from a sports perspective. And I don't want to say it reads like a goodbye, but it certainly feels like goodbye could be coming. I mean, you know, it's a public acknowledgement of I may be done. And I've kind of wondered with all of this is, is he done And are we just kind of waiting for him to admit that he's done and waiting for the Nats to admit that he's done? You know, it's it's a moving piece in a lot of ways, 
But from a sports perspective, it's sad because things are not going well for Steven Strasburg, and it doesn't feel like he's any closer right now to being able to pitch than he was, say, a few months ago. No, he's not. And I think we've all kind of sensed that based on what we saw, the little bit that we've heard, just the lack of any kind of update or progress tells you that it was still very much up in the air and that there wasn't any reason to be thinking that anything good was going to be coming anytime soon. Knowing him, at least as well as you can know him because he doesn't let a lot of people into his life, I know how much this is hurting him. Like This is not at all how he wanted his career to go, going from the high point, the ultimate high point of winning World Series MVP and fulfilling what he was always supposed to do for this franchise to now essentially three straight years be unable to physically perform after signing that huge contract, knowing that he's still tied to that contract for another four years after all this, and just genuinely not knowing what's next. I don't know that he has come to grips with the idea that this may be it. I think he's going to go through the offseason. I would imagine at some point he is going to attempt to start throwing again and see how it goes and take it step by step and, and go from there. But there's an, an honesty there and an admittance that he doesn't know, just like none of us all along have known what's really going to happen here. And for him to admit that, I think, is a big deal because anytime he's dealt with anything injury-wise in his career, he's always been able to say, okay, if I do A, B, C, and D, then I should be back by this point. And so that's my goal is to cross off all these check marks I need to cross to get through my rehab, and then I'm going to be good to go. And in this case, for a couple of years now, it isn't that linear of a path. And anytime it seemed like he was taking the right step forward, something would happen that would set him back. And so now he's looking at a blank sheet of paper and doesn't have those things to check off for sure for where he's going from here. And yes, it is sad and it's disappointing. And we just don't know and he doesn't know how this is all going to play out. Could it be the end? Yeah. But I don't think he knows that or the Nationals know that for sure. They're just kind of waiting to see if he reaches a point physically that he can try to start doing this again and then see how it goes step by step. Well, I think if he does get to that point, I think the approach needs to change. I think you need to bring him back as a reliever. I think this thing of trying to still have him as a starter needs to stop, okay? His body is failing him. The idea of him pitching five, six, seven innings at a time, I think is just pie in the sky right now. I think you bring him back with the idea of you pitch an inning at a time. If it happens to be that things are going well and he's feeling well, then maybe you can try to extend him a little bit. But to try to get back on the horse for a fourth consecutive season, off him having barely pitched the last three years. I mean, he's made eight total major league starts the last three seasons. To try to do this again of, we'll see if he can start, and we'll have him pitch in the minors, and then we'll bring him up to the majors and see how that goes. I just think you're banging your head against a brick wall at this point. I think you have to try something different. You know, maybe pitching an inning at a time is something that he can do, his body can respond well to. And then, like I said, if things go well, you go from there. But you can't do this again next year. For a fourth straight year, try the same stuff and expect a different result. Next year is going to be his age 34 season. Assuming he is going to try to pitch again next year, and I do think that that's an if. I do think it's possible we get some sort of a buyout this offseason. But if we don't, I would be interested to know if the Nats and Strasburg have talked about this, You know, maybe trying him as a reliever for now and seeing how that goes. Well, yeah. So I think one way or another, probably by the spring, 
he's either able to do this or he's not. And that's when you make you know a call on it. I don't think they would then spend the whole season going through a rehab thing and, well, maybe he'll be ready by June or July. I, I think either he can get himself in position to start the season or that may have to be the end of the road for him. The relief thing is interesting. The concern I would have would be, yes, shorter spurts and you don't have to build up your arm, but it's also the quick turnarounds and the life of a reliever, something completely different than he's done. We know how much a creature of habit and routine he is. And so, would that be in some ways harder for him to stay healthy, even if the underlying condition he has got him to a point that he could do that and pitch one inning at a time? Then there's just the whole question of can your body hold up to the life of a reliever, which is a whole different you know, animal in itself. So, I don't know if that has been broached, if that is something that appeals to either him or the team. But you know, I do think you're going to reach a point, probably come spring training at the latest, where they have to decide one way or the other, how are we going to proceed? Can we proceed? Because no, I don't think anybody wants to go through this again. All that process just to get them to come up and maybe make a start in the middle of the season and risk having it all go haywire again. So in theory, he's going to have a whole off season to do whatever he needs to do, go to spring training, start up on the same program that everyone else would be. And we're going to get to West Palm Beach and find out, does he have it in him or not? Thoracic outlet syndrome, man. It is a career destroyer for pitchers. I mean, I was thinking about this earlier in the day. Will Harris. I mean, you hear nothing about Will Harris. He underwent surgery for TOS a month before Strasburg did in 2021. Will underwent his procedure in June. And, you know, speaking of ghosts, he's disappeared. You hear nothing about him. His contract's going to expire after this year. You know, it's been a big disappointment, but... Like, you know, just nothing like his it feels like his career's done. You know, we talked about Cade Cavalli earlier in the show. Cole Henry, TOS for him this year. I mean, that was really bad news this season. You know, what does that mean for him moving forward? So it is just the worst thing right now. If you're a pitcher, like the worst pitching injury for a pitcher these days seems to be this thoracic outlet syndrome. Hit us up on Twitter. Tell us what you think at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at natschatpodcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Fitting into the belt. The pause, the kick, here's the pitch. Swinging a ground ball left side at third. Vargas has it. He plants and fires to Manessas in time. And bang! Zuma Curly W's in the books.